Well, you guys sound really good. As much as I appreciate the piano and our piano player, it's nice to hear acapella every once in a while. Well, we are going to be wrapping up 1 Corinthians chapter 3 today. It is a really deep and rich chapter. It's really like all of scripture, uh, insurmountable. We could spend an eternity in that one chapter and really never plumb the depths. But alas, we need to move on eventually. And today is that day where we're going to be wrapping up chapter 3. However, we're going to take a, a scenic route. And we will get to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 eventually. But I want to start off by looking at Hebrews. So go ahead and open up your Bible and uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 3 to start. I'm going to be reading the first three verses. Hebrews 3, 1 through 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just as much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. And so here we see a, a similar concept to what we've been looking at in 2 Corinthians 3. We see that Moses is inferior to Christ. Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus is better than Moses. We see this all throughout the, the book of Hebrews. That's what the book of Hebrews is about, how Jesus is superior to Moses, how Jesus is superior to angels, he is superior to the Aaronic priesthood. How, like Abraham, Jesus is superior to Melchizedek. That's what the, the whole book of Hebrews is about. But this passage in particular highlights how Jesus is superior to Moses. And we've seen this same kind of concept throughout 2 Corinthians 3. And what might not be so clear to some is the fact that the, the covenant of Christ, the new covenant, which is inaugurated by the, the blood of Christ, is superior to the old covenant that God made with Moses. It's very easy to see from these passages, from these verses, Jesus is superior to Moses. But today we're going to continue to look at that concept that the, the new covenant inaugurated in Christ's blood is superior to the covenant of Moses. But let's go ahead and Open up with a word of prayer, and we'll continue to look at the superiority of the new covenant. God, we do thank you for who you are. We thank you for your life, for your death, for your resurrection that we just got to, to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. God, we thank you for the, the picture of communion, of the unity that we have in you, that you are the one who brings us together, who unifies us, that you have taken us and raised us up with you and seated us with you in the heavenlies. God, we thank you for your word, for your holy, inspired, infallible word. We pray that as we look into it today, that you would speak to us, that we would see you more clearly, that we would understand what it is that you would have for us in 2 Corinthians 3, that we would see the, the absolute superiority, not just of you, but of your covenant, and that you have taken us and you have grafted us into that covenant, that you have given us life in you, that you have taken our, our wicked, hard hearts and given us a, a heart of flesh and that we have the, the life of the Spirit living within us because of who you are. 
God, I pray that you would help us to uh, ignore any distractions, but we'd be focused and concentrated on you and the, the truth that you have for us in your word. And God, we love you. We praise you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. Well, before we get to 2 Corinthians, I want to now turn back into the Old Testament, having established the superiority of Jesus over Moses in Hebrews. Let's turn back to Exodus, and we'll look at uh, Exodus chapter 34. And I want to, um, even before we get to, to Exodus chapter 4, I want to consider what is really unquestionably one of the most intriguing concepts in Christian theology. That is the, the concept of Christophanies. The fact that the, the Christ who made himself known at the Incarnation didn't just come into existence at the Incarnation. That the Word is eternal, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This Word, this Jesus that we know, he is without beginning, without end. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He had no point in time where he came into existence. He only had a point in time where he took on flesh. And we also know about God from Deuteronomy 4, from John chapter 4, that God is spirit, and we worship him in, in spirit and in truth. And so this concept of a, a Christophany is really amazing. It's exciting. It's whenever we see a, a physical appearance of God in the Old Testament, we can know that is, that's Jesus. Prior to him actually taking on flesh, to the word becoming flesh, we see pictures and images of the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. We see this from the very beginning back in Genesis chapter 2 when Adam is walking with God in the garden. He's walking with Jesus. The first Adam is walking with the last Adam. Uh, we looked not too long ago at the book of Joshua, and you guys might remember from Joshua chapter 5 where Joshua has this encounter with the commander of the army of the Lord. And during this encounter, Joshua bows down and he worships the commander of the Lord's army. And if you guys are familiar with scripture, whenever that happens, when, uh, when somebody bows down and worships just a mere man or an angel, that man or that angel, they're, they're quick to say, no, you get up right now because I'm not the most high, I'm not God. God alone is worthy of worship. Well, that's not what the commander of the army of the Lord does back in Joshua 5. Instead, he says, boy, you need to take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. He doesn't shut him up. He doesn't tell him he needs to stand up. He accepts that worship because that worship is right. That worship is good because the commander of the army of the Lord is, in fact, a pre-incarnate picture of Christ. We see that same thing in Exodus 3 when Moses comes to the burning bush. Again, we see the, the superiority of Jesus in that chapter that Moses comes to the burning bush and he has this encounter with Christ. That there is also a Christophany that he is encountering the, the angel of the Lord, is what the text says. And then it later says that he's talking to God. He is talking to Yahweh, to the one, again, who is from everlasting to everlasting, the one who is without beginning, the one who is the great I am. Moses had an encounter with Jesus. Isn't that a trip? Jesus, who was born many hundreds of years later, and, and Moses was there having this encounter with him. Well, I want to look at Exodus 34. We see another encounter that Moses has with the pre-incarnate Christ. So let's look at Exodus chapter 34, and we'll start in verse 1. And the text says, Now the Lord said to Moses, 
cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones. So he had already had two stone tablets and, and gone down and he had wrecked these tablets. And now we're in this section of the text where Moses had gone back up to get some replacements. And he says, cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered. So be ready by morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of the mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning, assuming he slept at all, and he went up to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Remember, this is Jesus standing there, right? God is spirit. Jesus has a body. Verse 6, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God compassionate and gracious. Now, stop for a second. Realize this is God's own explanation of who he is, of his characteristics, of his attributes. He's calling himself compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities, transgressions, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own possession. So Moses here encountering God in a very intimate way, encountering the pre-incarnate Christ, intimately being there and, and seeing his glory. Just prior to this, at the end of verse 33, or chapter 33, rather, Moses asked, can I, can I see your face? Can I see your glory? And God said, well, no, not really, but kind of. I'll, I'll hide you in a, a cleft in a rock, and I'll pass by. And, and that's what we just read the description of. Well, now let's jump down to verse 29, same chapter, Exodus 34, 29. It came about when Moses was coming down from the mountain, from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hands, as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, what he had been commanded the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Now, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll see how this ties in. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3 is really a, a commentary, so to speak, of Exodus chapter 34. And so I wanted to start there this morning. But if you guys will... 
uh, think back over the last few weeks and some of the things that we've learned about the, the old covenant and the new covenant and again how they relate to one another and how they interact with one another and how the new covenant is in fact superior to the old covenant. Uh, just kind of glance your eyes starting at, at verse 7 and, and work your way down and we'll be reminded that Paul in verse 7 refers to the Mosaic covenant that was given on uh, tablets of stone as a ministry of death. That's how he talks about the, the Old Covenant. It's a ministry, but it's a ministry of death. We see in uh, verse 8 that it is, in fact, glorious. There is a glory that belongs to the Old Covenant. However, it pales in comparison to the, the glory of the ministry of the Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit is even more glorious than the ministry of Moses. In verse 9, we see these two covenants compared the one is called a, a ministry of condemnation. That's not very uplifting or encouraging, is it? This old covenant ministry of condemnation. And in fact, it's being compared with the ministry of righteousness, which abounds in glory. Are you starting to get the picture? The new covenant is more glorious. The old covenant, not quite as glorious, though it does have glory. We see in verse 10 very explicitly that the new covenant has more glory, has a surpassing glory to the Old Covenant. And then in verse 11 says, For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is glorious. So the glory of the Old Covenant, again, though it has glory, it's a fading glory. It's a passing glory. Whereas the New Covenant glory remains. It is an eternal glory that doesn't fade. It doesn't pass away. Well, let's read our text, and then we'll go back and uh, take a look at it more in depth. Second Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 18. says, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now again, here in this passage, Paul is using Exodus 34, that passage that we just read, to illustrate the superiority of Christ over Moses, of the new covenant over the old covenant. He's going back and, and drawing from that text, and he's going to illustrate for us how the new covenant is in fact superior and as we examine the text, I think that we would do well to ask ourselves three questions about this text. First off, what is the veil? What are we even talking about? What does that mean? Uh, secondly, how is the veil removed? And then thirdly, what are the results of removing this veil? I think these are three questions that will help us understand the, the text and what it's saying and what Paul's purpose is for uh, giving us this text. And so first off, what is this veil? Well, First off, looking at the example that we just read in chapter 34 of Exodus, we realize that this glory that was shining on Moses' face, 
that's why he had to, to veil his face and kind of wrap up his face. That glory that was on Moses' face, it wasn't intrinsic to Moses, was it? It wasn't a glory that he had on his own. Uh, he wasn't special in any way. He didn't eat some kind of special mushrooms or something that made his face shine, right? This glory was just a reflection of God's glory. It was God's glory that was shining off of the face of Moses. Moses wasn't the source. In fact, he didn't even know that he was glowing until he came down off the mountain. People started to freak out and say, dude, what's wrong with your face, right? He had no idea until he came off the mountain. It was merely a, a reflection of the glory of God. It was just a, a shielded backwards glimpse of the remnant of the, the shadow of the glory of Christ, really, that he had. Moses didn't see Christ face to face. He just saw this kind of backwards glimpse of the, the shadow of the glory of Christ. And this was a result that his face was shining. It was glowing to the point that people couldn't even look at his face. This wasn't intrinsic to, to Moses. And in fact, we're told earlier in, in chapter 33 of Exodus and uh, later on in John 1, 18, I think, that, that nobody has seen God. You can't see the, the face of God. Think back to Isaiah 6, even the, the seraphim, when they're worshiping God, they have to cover their face because nobody can see God full on. And so just the, the glimpse of the glory of God was enough for the Israelites to not be able to, to look upon Moses. He had to wrap up his face like a, like a sheik because the glory was unable to be looked at by Israel. Now, that's not because there's anything wrong with God or his glory. God forbid, right? Uh, nothing wrong with Moses even. But the problem lied with, with Israel. They were the ones who were unable to look on this glory of Moses. They were the ones who couldn't come into the presence of, again, even this just shadow of a, a reflection of the glory of God. They found themselves guilty and condemned that God's glory, even this secondhand reflected glory on the face of Moses, exposed them, exposed their hearts, exposed their, their wickedness, the fact that they're evil, the fact that they don't measure up to the glory of God. If you look at verse 14 in 2 Corinthians 3, it says that their minds were hardened. That's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with hardened minds. I think that's what is being compared to this veil that, that Moses talked about that was veiling the glory of God, is the veil that these guys had over their, their hearts, over their minds, their hardened minds. Or in verse 15, a veil lies over their hearts. And this isn't something that only Israel was struggling with at this point. This is something that is common to, to all men, all humanity throughout all time, um, both then and now. It says, even to this day, we have this problem, this veil remains, because we are by nature children of wrath. We are by nature enemies of God. That is our position in Adam. As a result of the fall, as inheritance of the sinful nature that Adam passed on to us, we have hard hearts. We have this inability to gaze upon the glory of God. Just this last week, I was speaking to an unbelieving friend, and uh, this unbeliever referenced 1 Samuel 16, 7, um, which talks about how God looks not at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And my unbelieving friend had the understanding that this meant that God looks at our intentions. 
that even if we, if we mess up and uh, we, we make a boo-boo, right, and uh, the, the outcome isn't quite what we desired or what we wanted, God really, he's going to show grace, he's going to show compassion because he looks at our intentions. If we were trying to do good, God will take that into account if we're trying, if we're um, at least putting forth some effort. Well, that starts with a, a pre-understanding that men have good hearts. Men don't have good hearts, do we? Men are, once again, fallen, wicked, sinful, and um, that completely changes the, the understanding of this verse of 1 Samuel 16, 7. God looks at the, the heart, whereas man looks at the outward appearance. If you remember that, the context of that passage, it was talking about how Samuel was coming to anoint the next king. He was looking at the, the house of Jesse and trying to find the next king. And so he started looking at David's brothers, and he was looking at the outward appearance and thinking, oh man, that, that looks like a king if I've ever seen one. Oh no, not him. Okay, going down the line. But the text wasn't saying that God looked at the, the good intentions of David, and because of that, he was able to, to overlook his outward appearance. It was actually quite the opposite. God was saying, no, you don't look at the outward appearance of, of man. God isn't impressed with the, the manicured exteriors of David's brothers because he can look down into the depths of their heart and he can see the wickedness that lies within them that is intrinsic to their being because, again, they are in Adam. They have this sinful nature that is passed along to them. Uh, Genesis 6.5 says that every thought and intention of man's heart was always evil continually. That's all it was, just it was only evil continually. That really summarizes all the thoughts and intentions of man's heart. And Jesus really says the same thing in the, the New Testament when he's talking to the, the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says, you guys are just a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, it's just a bunch of dead men's bones that are rotting away. Or he uses the example of the, the cup. He says, you take the, the cup and you wash and you clean the outside of the cup and it looks really good, but inside it's just filthy and nasty. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. It is, is desperately wicked. Who can understand the heart? That is the, the, the condition of man's heart, right? And so when we read verses like 1 Samuel 6, 7, we should understand that God looks at the heart. That's not a good thing, right? We shouldn't count that as a, a positive thing, thinking, well, God is going to take my intentions into account. No, God looks at our heart, and he knows that every thought, every intention of man is always evil continually. This is our, our very nature as human, as humans, as people, right? We are fallen. We are sinful. This is the veil that Paul is talking about that lies over our, our hearts, that our hearts cannot look upon the glory of God because we are fallen creatures. And while we have this uh, inward struggle that we are dealing with, that we have to uh, take into account, we also have a, an external struggle. And this word veil in our text kind of hints at an external struggle. If you guys uh, glance down, we'll cheat a little bit and we'll dip into chapter 4. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. We see the same word used here. It says, and even if our gospel is veiled, same word, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so we see that we have not only this inward struggle of our own sinful fallen nature, but we have a, an external struggle that we have to deal with as well. And so Paul here, again, going back to Exodus 34, he's using this as an example of the veil 
that lies over Moses' face to illustrate the veil of, of our human hearts that lies over our, the hearts of natural men. And he does this, um, he, Moses, when he was wrapping up his face, he didn't do that for his own benefit. Again, he didn't even know that he had this awesome shining face. Uh, he did that for the benefit of Israel because Israel couldn't gaze upon his face. Uh, the veil wasn't over Moses' heart. The veil was over Moses' face, which exemplified the veil that is over the heart of mankind. And this doesn't mean that um, Moses, again, had a problem. The veil was over his face, not his heart. Moses indeed had an intimate relationship with God. He had a good relationship with God. He was in favor with God, whereas Israel was uh, not so much in favor with God, right? Let's look back a couple of chapters from Exodus 34 at Exodus 32. Exodus 32, verses 7 and 8. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Notice that God is calling them Moses' people, that Moses brought up out of the land of Egypt, even though they were God's chosen people, that God led up out of the land of Egypt. Um, kind of like when our kids get in trouble and pawn them off on our, our spouse, right? These are your kids right now. These are your kids today. Um, but continuing on, after saying, these are your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, they have corrupted themselves. It says, they have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf, and they have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. God wasn't very pleased with Israel at this point, right? They were not in good relationship with God. He wasn't happy with them at all. In fact, uh, Moses had to step in and intercede for them on their behalf. Moses had to act as a, a mediator for them. Uh, even prior to this, several chapters back, Moses or Israel rather had been complaining to Moses, saying, you know what, I think we want to go back to, to Egypt. We want to go back under slavery in under Pharaoh's arm in Egypt because we're not happy with where God has brought us today. Uh, they were not in a good relationship with God. And you might think, okay, well, this was just at the, the beginning. Let's cut Israel some slack. Surely they got better as time progressed, right? Not so much. Let's jump forward to the end of uh, Moses' life, right before Moses dies in Deuteronomy 29, verses 2 through 4. This is how Moses speaks of Israel. It says that Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, this starts off kind of positive. He says, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all of his servants and to all of his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. It sounds all right, right? But then he goes on, he says, yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Even after wandering through the desert for 40 years, they still didn't have a, a heart to know, eyes to see, ears to hear. They still had this veil that remained over their hearts, over their minds. They had this veil that kept them from seeing and experiencing the glory of God as Moses did. The veil remained. They had this inability to clearly see God. So what is the veil? I think it is our, our inability to truly see God, to truly understand his glory. Well, second question that we have to ask ourselves is, how is this veil 
removed? How do we get rid of this veil? And if we look back in 2 Corinthians 3, we see in verse 14, it says, By their minds, but their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. So we see it's not by the reading of the old covenant that the old covenant is insufficient to lift this veil, to take away this veil. We see the same thing in verse 15. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So the reading of Moses, the old covenant, is not able to take away this veil. But it says at the end of verse 14 that it is removed in Christ. Or in verse 16, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So it's not by the old covenant. It's not by Moses and the covenant that God inaugurated with him. It is by Christ and the new covenant, which is inaugurated in the blood of Christ that we just celebrated at the Lord's communion. That is what can take away this veil. That is what can open up our hearts and give us hearts to know and eyes to see and ears to hear, not the law of Moses. Uh, Romans 8.3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did in sending his Son. Or John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. John 5.39, Jesus talking about the scriptures, he said, you guys looked in the scriptures, you actually searched the scriptures, because your thinking was that in the scriptures you would find eternal life. And he says, no, it's not the scriptures that have eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. They testify about me and how Jesus is the one who brings life. Remember earlier in our, our passage, it talks about how the law was a ministry of death. The law brings condemnation, but the spirit brings life. Look with me at uh, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3 verses 21 and 22. It says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. Remember, this is the, the law of Moses. There is glory that is going along with the law of Moses. The law of Moses is glorious, but the law of the Spirit is more glorious. So is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Again, there is no way for us to have this veil removed by the, the law of Moses. The old covenant is insufficient to do this, but we need to have faith in Christ. The new covenant is far superior. That is what we need to look to. It is uh, a covenant of righteousness rather than a ministry of condemnation. And we see in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 3, it says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So Christ brings liberty, liberty from the law, liberty from sin and death. There is liberty, there is freedom in Christ. John 8.36 says, if Christ has set you free, then you are free indeed. This is a, the result of finding freedom in Christ, of Christ removing this veil from, from our hearts and making us able to uh, behold his glory. We know that Jesus is, in fact, the, the means of salvation, isn't he? 
Jesus alone can offer salvation. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody can come to the Father except through Christ. We can't um, be made right through observing the law. But what about the, the Old Testament? What about in the, the Old Covenant? What was the means of salvation in the Old Covenant? Certainly it was the law, right? Certainly they were saved by the law in the Old Covenant. No, they were not saved by the law in the Old Covenant, just as we were not saved by the law in the New Covenant. They were saved by trusting in God, by putting their faith in God and what God had revealed to them at that point in time, up until that point in time. Um, if you've been coming on Wednesday nights, we've been learning about progressive revelation, right? How God is slowly revealing more and more of himself as time goes on. How David knew a lot more about God and, and God's program and the ways of God than Moses did. And Moses knew more about the way of God than Abraham. And you and I, we know more about what God has revealed to us than uh, David, Moses, or Abraham because more has taken place. And God has given us more revelation than what he had then, than what they had then. But whatever God had revealed to his people was what he would hold them accountable for. And if they trusted God for that, then they would be saved. Uh, if they were trusting in themselves, then they would not be saved. We have to ask ourselves, um, is, is God glorious? Well, yes, God is glorious, right? God is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And if we ask, well, how can we see God's glory? Is God's glory able to be seen in the Old Covenant? Again, we have to ask yes. We have to answer yes. We can see God's glory even in the Old Covenant. However, strict observance is not sufficient for salvation. The law was never intended to save, not in the New Covenant and not in the Old Covenant. Nobody was ever saved by the law. Let's look at Romans 3, 19 and 20. I think this makes it very clear. Romans 3, 19 says, Therefore, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Now, verse 20 says, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That is what we get in the law. The law tells us, okay, well, we didn't measure up. This is the standard of God, and we fell short. No flesh is justified by observing the law. Not in the new covenant and not in the old covenant. Uh, going on a few verses later in verse 28 says that we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. And even into chapter 4, verses 2 through 5, talking about Abraham, it says, For if Abraham was justified or declared righteous by works, then he would have something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? That Abraham believed God and it, the, the belief, the trust in God, was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is credit, credited as a favor. Is not credited, rather, as a favor, but as what is due him. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. It is our faith, both in this dispensation and the prior dispensation, that brings us into right relationship with God. Not our works, but our faith is what makes us right with God. Now, I want to spend a little bit more time in the book of 
Hebrews. We started off in Hebrews, looking at how Jesus is superior to Moses. Uh, I want to go back there. Hebrews is really kind of the bridge between the, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It starts off saying, well, in, in times past, God spoke to our fathers in many portions in many ways. But in these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son. So it serves as this bridge between the, the Old Covenant and New Covenant and has so much to say on the, the topic. But looking at uh, Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 8, this is the, one of the go-to chapters on the New Covenant. And it says that, Finding no fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. Remember before, their minds were covered, right? That's what our passage says in 2 Corinthians 3. Their minds are, are covered or hardened. And I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is talking about a new covenant, a better covenant. In fact, going down to verse 13, it says, when he said a new covenant, he had made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. The new covenant is superior to the old covenant. The new covenant is where we have eyes to see, where God gives us a new heart. He puts his spirit within us. Jumping to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, it says that the law, uh, or the, the old covenant, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of the things, not the essence of the things, it can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year after year, make perfect those who draw near. We have to get that. The law can never make perfect those who make these continual sacrifices. Um, it can never make them perfect, these people who draw near by the law. Again, that's now and then. But look at this. Let's jump back one chapter in Hebrews 9.15, and we see here the means of salvation for those in the Old Covenant. Hebrews 9.15 says, For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed, get this, under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And so, the, the means of the, the covering for the sins of the old covenant is Christ. It's his sacrifice. That's how those who were under the first covenant are made right. This propitiation, this satisfactory payment that Jesus offers at the cross at Calvary is retroactively applied to atone for the sins that were previously committed in the Old Testament, which God had uh, previously passed over. The, the blood of goats and bulls that they would offer continually year after year, it was merely a temporary covering, merely a, a temporary atonement. It didn't cover them for eternity. The blood of Christ was retroactively applied to them based upon what they did with God and what God had revealed to them, whether or not they believed in God. So even under the old covenant, nobody was made right by observing the law, but they too were saved by the shed blood of Christ. And yet we see 
in the, the old covenant and this terminology talking about this veil that's covering our minds, covering our hearts, that men love the darkness rather than the light, even though God made a, a way for salvation. Uh, he, he came into his own and his own did not receive him because they loved their sin. Men beheld his glory, glory is of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then they took and they murdered him. They took and they nailed him to a tree, even though God made this way available. And now Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 3, this veil, it still remains even to this day. You guys are still unable to see. You guys are still unable to behold his glory, even though glory himself came down and took on flesh we are still unable to, to embrace that unless we have this veil removed in Christ, this veil which is unable to be removed by the law of Moses, by the reading of Moses, by the old covenant. Christ alone is sufficient to open up our eyes and to make us see his glory and to understand who it is that, that he is. Jumping back to 2 Corinthians 3, um, we can see the, the results of these things. So the veil is, what is a veil? It's uh, this inability to see, right? And it is taken away not by looking at the old covenant, but by Christ and what Christ has done, his finished work on the cross. What are the results of this? When we have had this veil taken away, when we put our faith and our trust in Christ, we have three results that we see in the text. We have hope in Christ, we have boldness in Christ, and we have glory in Christ. So we kind of skipped over verse 12 a little bit, but look back up with me at verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 3. It says, Therefore, having such a hope, again, speaking to the, the new covenant, Paul says, we have a, a hope in this new covenant. Remember, the law brings death. It's a ministry of condemnation. And any hope that there is in, in Moses just results in despair but the Spirit brings life and hope. Uh, Romans 8 talks about how all creation is, is groaning and crying out for redemption, recognizing that we're living in a fallen world, and yet we can have hope that is eternal, hope that never perishes, that we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And look with me at 1 Peter 1, 3-5, where Peter talks about the hope that we have, the eternal hope that we have in Christ. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. That is a hope that we can only have in the New Testament. That is not a hope that is provided by the law. In addition to this hope, uh, Paul talks about how he has boldness. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. Isn't that interesting that the foundation for the boldness that uh, arguably the, the boldest example that we have in all of Scripture, the Apostle Paul, his foundation for this boldness is based upon the hope that the new covenant provides. This really compels Paul to preach. 
because he can't keep his mouth closed. He has had this great encounter with Christ. He was um, knocked blind by Christ on the road to Damascus, and now he must proclaim the glory of the new covenant, this glory that is obviously superior to the Old Testament glory, to the Old Covenant glory, and he is compelled to preach. He is drawn like a, a moth to a flame, like a, a beggar to food, like a fat kid to cake, right? Paul has to preach. This is his mission. He is compelled to go out and to proclaim this gospel. It really demands a witness. He has the boldness to do so because of the new covenant. And if we fail to proclaim the boldness with boldness, this new covenant, the rocks are going to cry out because that is the, the glory of the, the new covenant. That is the glory that God has demonstrated in the new covenant of Christ, which he once again inaugurated with his blood. It is a glorious covenant that gives us hope and gives us boldness to preach. Now look down with me at verse 18. We see the, the glory that results from the new covenant. It says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And so we see here, first of all, it's talking about we all, not just one person, not just Moses beholding the glory of God, but we all get to behold the glory of God. And we do so with unveiled face. We get to see the glory of God in the new covenant without having some kind of barrier in between. We get to see his goodness. We get to see his grace in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But look at this. It says, even so, with unveiled face, it says, we are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Uh, perhaps you remember from our, our study in 1 Corinthians that one of the the uh, works that was popular in Corinth was that Corinth produced flattened bronze mirrors. They, they made these mirrors out of bronze, and you might imagine that a mirror that's made out of flattened bronze isn't going to exactly reflect the way that our modern mirrors do today. It's going to be much more akin to looking into a, a shiny car, where it's going to reflect to some degree, but not in the same sense. In fact, Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for we know, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. We're going to have this even clearer expression of who Christ is and the glory of Christ when we are with him in glory, when we are renewed from glory to glory. Remember back in Exodus 34:34. Moses, he did see uh, God, and, well, he didn't see God face-to-face -face necessarily, but uh, he, when he was in the presence of God, he would unwrap his face. He would take this veil off of his face and behold God's glory. This is how we get to behold God's glory in an unveiled manner. And we are uh, continually being transformed from glory to glory. There is a, an increasing aspect here in which we become more and more glorious as time goes on, in which uh, we become more glorious as we are exposed to the glory of Christ, and we get to know him more personally and more intimately by his power as from the Spirit, as it says at the, the end of that verse. This is a, a truly lifelong process where we are being changed, where we are being transformed from glory to glory. 
when we first come to Christ, that is a, a glorious experience, isn't it? When we get to know the, the Savior of the world, when we realize that, that we are insufficient to do anything about our, our sin, about this uh, position that we have before God, and yet we come to Christ and we, we bask in His grace and He has made us into a new creature, that is a glorious experience. And it's even more glorious still as we are sanctified and we become more and more like Him and we grow as Christians and we reflect His glory even more. That is a glorious experience. And yet, even still, that will pale in comparison to the glory that we will have when we see Him face to face. That is going to be a, an extremely glorious day when we behold our Savior face to face, when we are actually glorified. We are going to become even more glorious by being uh, transformed into His likeness. We're going to be receiving new bodies that are like the bodies of our Savior. He is always and continually conforming us even more so into his likeness that uh, he, he saved us and he is going to continue to, to work in us. He is going to uh, bring us to completion, finish the work that he has begun in us. And so we see that God is, in fact, glorious. We need to uh, realize that our natural state is veiled. We cannot see his glory unless we turn to Christ. Christ alone is able to rip off that veil and to show us the glory of God. And this will lead to, uh, to us having hope in Christ. It will lead to us being bold for Christ and an increasing, ever-growing glory that we have in Christ. Let's pray. God, we do thank you again for, for these things, that you are who you are, that you are a loving and gracious God. You are a God who saves. You are mighty to save. We thank you for the, the sacrifice of Christ that is sufficient to save not only us now, but even before. There was no flesh declared righteous by observing the law. Help us to realize that. Help us to proclaim that with boldness that we would go out and we would preach the, the truth of your gospel, the, the beauty of your gospel to a world that is dying and hurting, that we would shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and depraved universe. God, help us to uh, represent you well. Pray this in your name. Amen. Let's grab our hymnals and stand up. I heard 306. Maybe you can uh, sing that for us after the service. <laughs> and by the way, I was going to say, I really hear the children singing. That is awesome. That is um, something that is, yeah, it's a blessing. Uh, number 409, As the Deer. Four oh nine. 